The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. in the midst of an emphasis of five Sundays on the subject of biblical stewardship, giving, using resources that God has entrusted into our hands, his resources to begin with, entrusted to us to use in a responsible way. We do have an end in sight on this. Next Sunday, I'll make more explicit to you how we hope for many of you to make a prayerful response of special giving as we attempt to, in three years, eliminate the mortgage on this building so that we can build a stronger base of ministry than ever here. The focus is on ministry. And our leaders, by the way, many leaders, teachers, officers of this church have been at different gatherings they were invited to over the last few weeks And they are making, many of them, leadership commitments. We're going to tell you next Sunday what the total is that your leaders have committed to our goal on this as we challenge the rest of you in the congregation to consider. And all we're going to ask you to do is prayerfully consider a possible response. But we've been facing some of what the Scripture says about stewardship, and I turn you today to a very direct passage on the subject, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is reminding Corinthian believers of the need to finish up the work to make an offering that was being collected for Jerusalem believers that were in need because of a famine. And in fact, two weeks from today, I'm going to follow with looking at chapter 9 here in this same letter, which is also very much on track of this subject. Listen this morning as I read from God's Word. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 12. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, In knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor 
so that by you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This is God's word to us. This past week, I heard a true story, one that thrills me, and I tell it to you by permission this morning. I don't wish to identify the individual, but that person is present, and I wish that person to know that I'm very proud to be able to tell this story. A certain teenager in our church had talked to his mom about something you need when you're a teenager, an iPod. Now, he had one, as I understand it, but maybe it was older and was hoping to see it be replaced by a better model. If you are over 70 and have no idea what an iPod is, think transistor radio much glorified. An iPod is a teenager's means of access to music, so it's important. And this particular iPod that the teenager had in view, I understand, would cost close to $200. Well, his mom said, you know, I might be able to do that, but I wonder if we can combine that with a little incentive. With you perhaps concentrating on grades, working on those grades this semester, bringing them up a bit, And let's see if that iPod could be a reward for better grades. And I guess there was an agreement struck on that. And the son has indeed, I hear, raised his grades to his commendation. Well, last Sunday, this teenager had a one-two punch because in Sunday school he heard a message about stewardship, which many of our children's classes and young people's classes are considering. He heard that. And then he came and heard a sermon on stewardship and said, boy, they've got me coming and going, and after church, went to his mom and said, mom, do you still have that money set aside for the iPod that we talked about maybe at the end of the semester? And mom said, yes. I want you to listen. I don't know if I've got the exact words, but I've got the sense of what he said. He said, mom, I think I should not be so dependent on material things. So why don't you give that money to the church? Why don't you give that money to the church? If you think our young people exist to be criticized, think again. There's a young man I'm very proud of. Because the word of God penetrated his mind and his conscience and helped him discover something that I think many adults never quite discover. In the matter of giving to the Lord, it's not simply a matter of laws or rules or commandments. It's a matter of a motivation impelled by God's grace. Now, last Sunday, we spent some time tracing what you expect to hear about, I guess, when we talk about stewardship. I looked at the biblical doctrine of tithing. Won't go over all that again, but just remind you, we We started in 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul talked about weekly 
systematic giving proportionate to what a person has. He didn't specify the proportion. We went back to Genesis 14 and talked about the the first instance of the tithe in the Bible with Abraham and Melchizedek. I mentioned that in the book of Leviticus, the tithe was part of the law of God. We looked at a passage you always seem to consider on this subject, Malachi 3, a very direct and blunt passage where the prophet of God, you might say, lit into God's people who expected blessings but didn't expect to obey God. And Malachi said, bring the tithe to the Lord and watch him bless you. And I also look quickly at Matthew 23 where Jesus gives tacit approval to the idea of tithing but criticized those who did it with a legalistic, pharisaical mindset. And so I just come and restate the principle of that message that I believe the Scripture teaches that 10% of a believer's income systematically should be given for God's work according to this scriptural standard, not as a law imposed, not as a harsh commandment, but as an abiding and reasonable measurement for worship gifts offered back to God, the great giver. I'm going to do something not normally done, and if you are new, you wouldn't know this, but I almost never go back and and add on to a previous sermon, but I want to do that for just a couple minutes this morning before going on to our text. There were some things about tithing I would have liked to say last time that I didn't get a chance to say, so consider this an addendum, if you will. Tithing should be thought of as the training wheels of giving. Someone has called it that. Training wheels that help you learn to ride the bicycle. I learned to ride a bike. I was actually a little older than normal. There was a reason for that why I didn't start riding a two-wheel bike as soon as some kids. But I never had training wheels, but I did find it necessary at the beginning to get on my bike by getting on from the porch steps. As a result, I started out getting on the bike from the right side, which I'm told is not the side you're supposed to get on the bike. Everybody else gets on the left side. I, to this day, if I rode a bike, would get on the right side. But anyway, I needed to get started. I needed to get my balance going forward so that I wouldn't fall to the side, but rather move in a forward direction. There's so many people who never seem to get beyond the I'll give when I feel like it or I'll give when it's convenient state of mind. I think we see this, and I don't say this as a judgment upon you as a congregation because you're just a normal church this way. I think this would be true of just about every church. We can see when we have to cancel a service, for example, in the winter for snow. I always hate to do that. I hate to cancel it just because I'm canceling God's worship that I want people to be part of, but I also know when you will and when you won't venture out on the roads. And when we cancel a Sunday service, we know one of the effects will be a significant loss of net income. Now, you think about that. There certainly are many tithers, many systematic givers who would come back the next Sunday, and and they would give twice the gift because they said, well, I missed the Lord's supporting the Lord's work that week, and so here's the gift for last time. But, of course, not everybody does that. And as a result, we know many times, just about always, that we'll see about a third of a net loss, maybe more, from a canceled service. And that just gives witness to the fact that some are systematic and some are more sporadic, you might say. We give folks the opportunity, if they desire it, to 
give in a very regulative way that will be absolutely regulated by having their bank put an automatic deposit in the church. And there are folks who do that. They prefer that in this day and age, sometimes because they're shut in or can't get out so easily, or just because they say, I want to know it's going to be taken care of, and I can't always depend on myself to remember. Well, I'm certainly glad to see that happen, and we can set that up for you, by the way, if you want it. I don't personally practice it, and I'll tell you, not not because I condemn it at all, but for just a little tweak of my own personality. As I listen to Deuteronomy 16, where the text says there, Deuteronomy 16, 16, do not come before the Lord empty-handed. I feel like coming to worship with a gift in hand is actually a good, tangible reminder that my substance is coming to worship with me. In my case, the envelope comes with my wife because the ushers don't walk up here. Otherwise, uh, it would be with me. But my wife puts that envelope in for us every week. And if we forget, we go, oh, no. And we bring it the next time. Because we don't want to come to the Lord empty-handed. We believe that offerings are an act of worship. Philippians 4.18 says that the financial offerings of God's people can be fragrant offerings, Paul says, acceptable sacrifices to God. Now, another subject some ask about when we talk about tithing is that issue of what is the storehouse? By that, I refer to Malachi 3, where Malachi the prophet said, bring the Lord's tithe into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? In the Old Testament, it was the temple, of course. But people have an argument today. They say, well, does that mean I must give my tithe to the local church, and if I'm going to give to any other organization, that is over and beyond? I would say, look, we don't, where we don't have a biblical ruling on something, let's just use common sense. Certainly, I would hope your local church is a place faithful to the gospel, supporting missions, doing the things you want to see your tithe do, and ought to receive a large portion, ought to be, in the main at least, your storehouse. But if you choose to take some of your tithe and support a missionary you particularly know or an organization you think is worthy of that, by all means do that. I don't think we're legislated on that subject, and let's not make laws where there aren't laws. Giving, you know, is is both a habit and a growing skill, a growing spiritual discipline. I was reminded by Joel Michael, the gentleman who's been advising us in our stewardship program, that you ought to be growing as a steward as you go on in your Christian life, just as you're challenged to grow in Christian character or maturity in your spiritual decisions and your prayer life and all these other things, greater knowledge of the Word. Why would you not be expected to grow as a steward and go beyond just the basic things, the training wheel things? And certainly as we get older, you know, in young adulthood, many struggle. There are a lot of, you kind of have to buy everything at once and get a household established. And first thing you know, there are children. And first thing you know, there's college and a lot of expensive things. If a young family is able to faithfully tie, that's a great thing. But I think when we move through middle life and we become older, now I, I know you'll remind me seniors have reduced income, but seniors also have reduced expenses. And there ought to be ways we can move beyond just doing the basic thing with a more mature and creative way of giving what the Bible calls offerings. The Bible uses the terminology tithes and offerings for a reason. They're not the same thing. 
There are extra gifts that we're challenged to give that we might need to sacrifice, but God might be leading us and drawing us to do that as our ability to give grows and our joy in giving grows. Well, those are things I didn't get in last week, so consider that kind of an addendum to last Sunday. But now I want to go on and talk about the grace, the motive of biblical giving. Because if all we talk about is tithing, then we're, we're talking about the form of rules or what sounds to you like law, even though I tell you it's not entirely just law, it's more principle of the scripture. But there's more to it than just law or principle. If you don't give with the right heart motivation that I think our young man I mentioned a few minutes ago illustrated for us, you're probably going all wrong. If you're coming to God with a sense of grudging duty, okay, the pastor landed on it pretty hard. I better get it to 10%. Oh, I don't really want to, and it'll be difficult, but I'll do it. Don't do it that way. That's not the way you come to the Lord, with a joyous sense of the privilege of being tangibly involved in his work. And so this morning, in the time left, I want to look at 2 Corinthians 8 here and see some things I believe are illustrated here about the motive of our hearts as we give. The first thing I'd have you see is this, that grace-based giving reacts to God's gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice how grace is the leading word in this text? Verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. And it comes in verse 9 to culminate in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being a leading thought here. You see, when we bring grace into the equation, then we're not talking about precisely slicing the pie and saying, this is mine and this is God's. We're talking about an attitude of the heart. An attitude that really truly says as a Christian, I don't own any of this. I'm not taking any of it with me. The scripture says, naked came I from my mother's womb and naked I depart. And you tell me the part of your estate you think you're taking with me and show me how you're going to do it. It's not going to happen. You're going to leave everything you've got to somebody. And while you're managing it now, it's not ultimately yours. And we know this in our heads, but we say, well... Yes, pastor, but be practical. It really is mine. No, it really isn't yours. It really is the Lord's. It's not your money. He has put it in your hands. He has entrusted you perhaps with much, perhaps with little, perhaps somewhere in between, and he's asked you to manage what he's entrusted you. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 that says, what do you have that you did not receive. It came to you. Yes, you may have worked for it. You may have genuinely earned it by authentic hard labor. And yet, in the ultimate sense, it's God's gift from the one who owns everything. And he asks you then to, as you are stewarding his resources, to imitate his generosity. And you say, well, where do I find out about God's generosity? This text, verse 9, is saying, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you find it out. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Jesus Christ, the richest person who ever existed. Think of it. Before the incarnation, Christ would have looked at our planet, at all the mountain ranges and all the oceans and and all the stars and all the constellations and all the galaxies, and he would have said, look at it all. Mine! It's really mine! And he came to be a little child in flesh in the home of a poor man who eked out a living with tools, made a living but never became rich. And there he was himself, a workman for 30 years of his life. Think of it. Jesus built furniture or put roofs on a house or whatever it was he did and got paid for it and perhaps he saved some of his money. Perhaps when he began his his uh, active ministry, he had a, enough set aside that he could draw from his own subsistence. We don't know that. The Bible's just completely silent on that. But we do know that he borrowed a lot of things. He borrowed places to stay. He gladly received food as gifts and support from people who cared about his ministry. And in the end, he borrowed a tomb. He didn't even have that prearranged or paid for. You see, Jesus Christ, the richest person there was, became the poorest person there was to make you rich. And the Bible says, consider his grace and act accordingly. Respond to God as a giver as you think about that grace. I don't know a better place where you can do that than with Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'm a little bit given to emotion at times, and I tell you, there are times when I have a problem singing the last verse. If you're really paying attention to what you're saying, you should have a problem singing the last verse of When I Survey, the Wondrous Cross. As, as the hymn spells out the, the beauty of what Christ has done in the atonement of the cross, and it comes to that last verse, and, and essentially it's answering the question, how can I pay God back for this? And the hymn says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small for love so amazing and so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. That's more than 10%, folks. That's 100%. Christ And what he has done demands the whole of my devotion. And do you see then, if you really respond to him that way, how that affects your attitude? You're no longer saying, how do I parcel out this dollar, this dollar's God, those nine are mine. You're saying, God, you're everything. You've given everything. How can I not respond to you with open-handed and willing generosity? To in some human way, yes, Lord, I can never copy you, but to somehow respond to you. And you know, I would say, and I say this with all sincerity, if if you as a Christian steward, a believer in Jesus Christ with a heart remade by God's grace, aren't sometimes stabbed by amazement at what Christ did for you, then you're tuned out. You know, you probably have your iPod in and your earplugs and you don't understand what I'm talking about. Because it's grace that impels us to act with God-like generosity. And I say, if you're not coming to God with that kind of a generous heart, thankful for Christ, keep your offerings. Keep them. Because they might even be condemning you. 
If you're simply doing it in a manner of legal obedience and saying, well, I guess I have to do this. Now, secondly, grace-based giving in this passage of 2 Corinthians 8 is something that's motivated internally, not externally. I've come right up to the door of saying this in the last point, that grace that's like that of Christ comes from a Christ-transformed life. It comes because Christ lives in me, because his Holy Spirit indwells me. And look at what that does to people. Paul says, let me give you exhibit A here in verses 2 through 5 of the Macedonian believers. Now, these were people not too far away from Corinth, a little bit north of them. It included the church of Philippi as one place that was in the district of Macedonia. And Paul says, let me tell you about them. Now, the Corinthian church was a relatively more wealthy church. It was in a port city, a lot more activity there, a lot more trade. Macedonia was a more removed district where people weren't that wealthy. And Paul says, let me tell you just just as an example, what some of your fellow Christians are doing about this same offering we're talking about. These Macedonians, out of their severe trial, their overwhelming joy, where did overwhelming joy come from? Christ. And their extreme poverty. All right, you combine overwhelming joy in Christ and extreme poverty, what do you get? Rich generosity. So that on their own, they pleaded with us for the privilege They said, Paul, don't leave us out. I hope you're not passing by our town because you think we're too poor to help out. No, Paul, please, here, take our offerings. They wanted to share. And notice verse 5. Paul gives their motive. They had given themselves first to the Lord, then to us. I heard a story years ago about a man who was being baptized in a Baptist service in a river. He was getting ready to wade into the river. It was his turn to be baptized. There was the preacher waiting for him. And as he was going into the river, his, his wife spoke to him and said, Henry, wait a minute. You have your wallet in your pocket. Give me your wallet. And the man thought for a minute and said, no, dear. My wallet needs baptizing too. And he went in and had it baptized. And he was saying, if Christ is going to have me, he's going to have my resources. He's going to have my salary. He's going to have my equity in various possessions I have. I'm going to offer myself to him completely, my pocketbook, along with my heart. If Christ has changed your life, that has to be true, you see. If the heart is made new, the pocketbook follows. And if the heart is not made new, then all we're ever going to be doing in talking about this subject is making people mad. That preacher's trying to get my money. I'm not trying to get your money. I don't want your money. God is interested in the motive of your heart that responds as an act of worship and obedience by internal, I want to do this. You see, somebody said there's, there might be three kinds of giving. A person said there is grudge giving, which means I ought to. There's duty giving, which says I should or I have to. And then there's thanksgiving, which says I want to. That's what the Macedonians were saying. I want to. In fact, I want to do more than than is comfortable. I want to give something abundant in the name of this God who has given for me. I've read, I'm sure you have too, about 
a practice in early American churches that really was as, as contrary to stewardship as could possibly be when the days when they had meeting houses arranged like ours, much smaller for the most part. And the way the whole ministry of the church was supported was something called pew rent. You've, heard, you've read about this. The communities would, you would rent a pew. You had a pew that belonged to you. You could bring your own little cushion in, your own little footrest, make it the way you wanted, and you paid a sum of money each year to have that pew. Now, if you were of the aristocracy, if you were the judge or, I don't know, the merchant or somebody in the town, you paid more pew rent and you got the really good pew, maybe closer to the preacher or where everybody could see you and maybe, by the way, closer to the stove to be warmer. You know, that was good to have. And if you weren't so important, then your pew was out further. If you were a slave, your pew was up at the gallery, and so on. And you paid your pew rent, like you paid your gas bill or whatever, your car payment. Only problem was a lot of people didn't pay it, and therefore the preacher didn't get his salary, and there were all kinds of squabbles about that. Well, listen, pew rent is as far from biblical stewardship as anything could possibly be. That was, that was people with grudge giving. Oh, I guess I've got to pay that doggone bill that came from the church. That doesn't have anything to do with stewardship. When you compare these Macedonians who couldn't help but give, who begged to give more as a matter of the inward expulsion of their heart. Paul said grace-based giving tests the sincerity of the heart. And if the heart belongs to Christ... It's not a question of an argument of do I want to give. Well, finally today, know this, that grace-based giving of the type Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 8 brings glory to God and refreshment and life and joy to the giver. Paul said, see that you excel in this work of grace. There are people in this church who excel in knowledge of the Bible. They've been studying the Bible for many years, and they know as much as a lot of preachers do. We've got some wonderful lay teachers at this church, and many of you are hungry for that knowledge. We've got folks that are are strong in prayer in this church that excel in prayer, others that excel in ministry to youth or children. Paul says, here's something else for a Christian to show excellence in, the grace of giving. Not giving in order to get. By the way, the folks that tell you that, you know, give this percentage and God will give it all back to you right away, that's pretty much nonsense. There are returns for giving promised in Scripture, but most of them are eternal. When Jesus would talk about receiving, he said, who will give you the true wealth if you can't give the wealth of this world? He was talking about rewards in eternity. And that's where many of the rewards for giving will be. Not today necessarily. I'm not going to tell anybody, give this money and God will replace twice as much like you hear a radio preacher say. Tune him out. He's wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. God will, I think, put a sense of sufficiency and dependence and thanksgiving into your life. Those are blessings that come as a result of giving. And those blessings refresh you. And make you trust the Lord and make you say, Lord, I'd like to do more. Show me how I can do more and do it more intelligently. Let me close with this illustration that you've heard at least years ago. I know I've used it. But it always speaks to me when you picture in your mind the land of the Bible. Perhaps you can picture the fact that the Jordan River flows from the mountains in the north, Mount Hermon and that mountain range, straight down pretty much south, comes to the Sea of Galilee, 
continues out of the Sea of Galilee and flows down to the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places in the earth. Now, if you've been there, and actually some of our folks have have visited Israel not long ago, just about everybody goes to the Sea of Galilee. And let me tell you, when you go there, you'll find it's one of the places in the land of the Bible that fulfills every expectation. And it it just gives you joy to be there because it's beautiful, it's refreshing. You can picture Peter and the fishermen working there on on that lake. It's not spoiled with a lot of commercialism. It still today abounds with fish. It's a pleasant spot. But then you go down as the Jordan has an outlet on the south of the Sea of Galilee. It goes down to the Dead Sea. If you made that trip, like I guess it's a couple hours, maybe three hours bus trip from Sea of Galilee down to, maybe more than that, down to the Dead Sea, you couldn't possibly encounter a greater geographical change from a a green, fresh, beautiful place to a place that, first of all, smells bad. It smells like sulfur. There are chemical plants not far away that, that take the alkali and the chemicals from the Dead Sea and turn it into various products. And you, you go there, and you know folks go in it just to try it out because it's so saline that you almost bob like a cork on top of it. Let me tell you, if you, don't, if you can't float anywhere else in the world, you could float in the Dead Sea. It's almost like floating on top of concrete. And here's this sea that's lifeless. Nothing grows there. It's ugly. And you say, what is the difference? Jordan River connects these things. What's the difference? The difference is simply the Sea of Galilee is, is cycling through. Water comes in and water goes out, and it's a fresh life cycle going on there. Water comes to the Dead Sea and goes nowhere. There's no outlet at all. And everything there is dead. And I think God says that's what many people's lives are like who just think the, the people Malachi addressed said, come on, God, give me, give me. Come on, God, you're not gimmying enough stuff right now. I'm kind of upset, God. And Malachi, in so many words, said, you folks are the Dead Sea. You think God's just going to bless you and bless you, and you have no responsibility to give out. Folks, consider the motive for giving. The motive is not what law will tell me how to divide up my paycheck. If your heart motive is not there, almost everything else about giving is futile. My prayer is that you would discover the joy of approaching God your Savior week by week like these gracious givers in Macedonia who gave themselves first to the Lord and then with baptized pocketbooks to his work, motivated by hearts full of grace imitated the pouring out of Jesus for the cause of the kingdom of God. See that you excel in this grace of giving. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you keep working on us. We are works in progress. And we are at different points in our grappling with this. Pray for those who are still working on the training wheels, that you would help them, show them that you can be trusted with the principle of the tithe. But I pray, too, for those that might be saying a dangerous thing to themselves, well, I'm doing that tithe. Certainly God is happy with me. Save us from pride in the act of giving and make us listen to your spirit 
who will show us wise and generous ways to imitate our Savior in his self-giving love. We pray this in his name. Amen.